Bishop nicht. Don't call me a bishop. <laughs> Listen, if you're going to call me bishop, you better give me a cool hat then as well. I've been a part of uh, Catholic masses where the bishop shows up and he's got some sweet garb. Uh, my name is Nick. Um, I am the lead pastor here at Mercy Hill. Happy to bring you God's word week in and week out. If I haven't met you, uh, love to meet you afterwards. Hang around. We're going to have coffee, donuts, Easter egg hunt for your kids, things like that. Um, happy Resurrection Day to you. Yeah? I mean, every, every, every Sunday, every day really is Resurrection Day for me. But we uh, set apart one day a year in our calendar to say, man, let's remember. Let's remember what Jesus did on the first day of the week. Um, when we thought all hope was lost, when we thought we were dead in our sin, um, it was only just beginning, right? Amen. Um, with that, I think I am <coughs> going to dive right in here this morning. We are going to be in the Gospel of John. So this church, man, we'd, I'd love for you to keep me honest, love for you to keep a, a Bible in, in your lap. Uh, in front of you. So if you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'll get one to you. I want you to see the sort of things I'm seeing uh, in the text. Although today I suppose will be a little bit different than normal. But if you don't own a Bible, that's our, uh, Merry Easter. That's our gift to you, okay? You can keep it. When you have one, let's open up to the fourth gospel in the New Testament there, the Gospel of John. It's chapter 21, the last chapter in his gospel. Uh, it's going to be verses 1 through 8. And as you're turning there, I'll just say this. Jesus has already risen from the dead in the narrative of John here. Um, we don't know exactly how much time has elapsed, maybe a few days, a few weeks. Uh, one thing we uh, do know is that Jesus has already appeared to Christ, or I'm sorry, he's already appeared to his disciples probably two more times. And this is going to be now the third time that he, he appears to his disciples. And at least for John, it's, it's the last. It's kind of the closing scene. So John 21, 1 through 8, read it, we'll pray, and we'll dive in. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, which is, for your reference, it'll come in later, also known as the Sea of Galilee. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. Well, they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. And just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far off from the land, but about a hundred yards off. Would you pray with me? Again, like we always do, Lord, this morning, just praying with some of the guys before the service. And it occurred to me how special it is, how insightful it is, that when you rose from the dead, you didn't just hightail it out of here. You didn't 
flaunt your glory over men who crucified you. You didn't leave us in the dust as if bitter or done with us. Instead, you rose from the dead and you lingered. The book of Acts tells us you were here 40 days. Ministry. To the people, even the people that had denied you and ran from you and gave up hope in you. You spoke of your life, you spoke of your death, and you spoke of your resurrection in a way that they could understand. You had done these things for them. You've done these things for us. That's why we're here this morning. We would not be here if you had just left for the throne. But instead, you formed a people. And even when you left, you didn't leave. You sent your spirit back. And you're here alive this morning. God, we thank you for the resurrection presence of our Savior. And Jesus, we just ask that you would be in this room here this morning pursuing each person here in the way they need it most. Some of us need you to hunt us down appear to us and comfort us in our sorrow, in our insecurities, in our shame or our feelings of condemnation. Some of us need you to pursue us here in this room, appear and convict us. Christianity is not a joke. Sin is real. God is holy. And you need a Savior. And he's ready to forgive. Can we just pray that you would do this and more than we could even think to ask or imagine here in this time we have together. Amen. Sorry, I'm actually still getting over the... Uh, I did... Ha- Last week I said, man, I feel so bad up in here. I think I might have the flu. I have the f- I had the flu. I gave it to my family. That's why they're not here again. I feel so bad. We were doing ER visits and everything. So if I'm still coughing, I, I promise I've been released, uh, but I'm okay. But uh, please just bear with me. I'm sorry about that. It was brutal. And we got the shots, man. They didn't help us at all. Um, anyways, it seems to me, I got kind of a long introduction here, so so hang with me. But it seems to me that The deep longing uh, of every human heart is that we would be fully known and deeply loved. Both fully known and deeply loved. Where you have just one or the other of these two things, you don't have what the human heart, what you and I, Longing for. But when you have both together, it's a dream come true. I've heard it said, I want to think about this with you for a moment. Um, I've heard it said that to be uh, deeply loved, but not fully known, um, while perhaps exciting for a moment to have, you know, the love of someone else is at the end of the day, uh, fundamentally dissatisfying, superficial. You might think of it, um, probably this would be the experience of many, say, celebrities in, in, a, in a more pointed way, where you have whole hosts of people who deeply love you. I mean, they are tattooing your name on their arm. They can sing the songs you've written verbatim or quote the lines from your movies verbatim. They love you. If you walk down the street, they would fall over as if dead. But they don't know you at all. 
And while that sort of experience, if you are the celebrity, may in fact be for a moment invigorating, exhilarating, exciting, at the end of the day, somewhere in there, this twin longing, this twofold longing is going to surface again. Now, okay, it's great that I have all these fans. It's great that when I get on my Twitter, there's two million followers. It, that, that's wonderful. But I know that if I put out a bad album, or if I make a bad movie, or if I lose these curves, or I lose this boyish smile, or I lose my money, whatever it is, their love goes with it. Because they don't truly know me. I know they don't truly love me. Now, I don't think we have any celebrities in here this morning. But nonetheless, I do think that this is our experience too in many ways. I'm sure you're familiar with this idea of being loved and yet not uh, being truly, fully Known. In, in fact, I think a lot of times we do this to ourselves. Um, if you're anything like me, one of the tendencies you're going to have in your relationships with other people is going to be to downplay your losses, kind of underemphasize your flaws, and maybe overplay, uh, uh, exaggerate your wins and your strengths. You're going to try to, as the saying goes, uh, put your best foot forward, right? I thought about that, like, both my feet are ugly. What am I supposed to do with that? (laughs) But you're supposed to put your best foot forward. In other words, see that about me. I want you to see what looks good about me. Maybe we'll get around to this other mess that I'm hiding. So we kind of don't want people to fully know us, truly know us. Why? Because we want them to love us. Because we want them to accept and we want to be on the inside at work or with the ladies downtown. But even if the person buys the line that we're selling, even if we get their love, so to speak, isn't it true that you kind of know this isn't satisfying? This isn't, this is superficial. I have to keep up the act. And if I don't, what will happen then? So you kind of, we often live these kind of anxious lives of the image that came to my mind was like a used car salesman. Forgive me if you are one. I'm just, I'm just thinking, okay? <laughs> it's like a used car salesman who, who is just kind of praying that the customer doesn't ask to see what's in the hood, what's under the hood, right? Because, yeah, sure, you open it up and I polished that thing off. We took a, a, a hose to it or whatever, but they're going to notice there's belts that are cracking. There's pistons that are missing or whatever. It's not, things are not well under the hood. So I'm selling something to you, but at the same time, I'm anxious. There's this front. But because I don't want you to fully know me, because if you did, would you deeply love me? So I think we experience this side of it, all of us in one way or another, being loved but not known. I think one of the reasons why we settle for that side of the equation is because the other side is even more painful. While uh, being, you know, uh, loved but not fully known is superficial, and dissatisfying, being known and rejected is perhaps some of the worst stuff we can imagine. And I would wager that some of your worst, some of your most difficult, most uh, enduring 
painful memories arise in this category where you open yourself up to someone you let your guard down you let them see you without makeup you let them see your life without composure you entrusted yourself to them let them in whether it was a spouse a significant other a a a parent a teacher a pastor a boss whoever it is let this person in and when they actually saw you They said, well, I can't can't stick around with this. They mocked you. They abused you, made fun of you, rejected you, pushed away from the table. We're done with you. Is there anything more painful than to be known but not loved precisely because of it. It's my guess that most of your relational and emotional turmoil arises because of stuff like this. And so what do we typically do? That's when we say, all right, let's build the castle walls. All right, it hurts so badly to be known and rejected. I guess I'll have to settle for not being known and maybe being accepted, however superficial it feels. Because it's better than this. At least I'm safe. We give up on the dream. In other words, we give up on the deep longings of our heart. So to be deeply loved but not fully known is superficial and unsatisfying. To be fully known but not deeply loved is our worst nightmare. But if both are brought together, if we can be both fully known and deeply loved, well, that would be, as I've been saying, a dream come true. That would be good news. That would be gospel. Somebody knows me, my bad, my ugly foot, and my good foot, my hood, and what's underneath. Knows the mess, knows the junk, knows the sin, and loves me still. Not just in spite of it, but right there in it. Well, that is... Brothers and sisters, the offering of Easter, that is what Christianity brings to the table. That's what makes our faith and what we have here in the Bible, in the gospel, so compelling, so attractive, so different. Every other religion is going to say, clean yourself up. But in Christ, we have this message. He knows you're a mess. He knows the stuff you try to hide. He knows the sins you still struggle with. He knows your insecurities. He knows the stuff you're ashamed of. He knows the guilt you still carry. He knows. And he loves you. And he's here to help. You don't have to wash yourself. He wants to wash you. This is the offering of Easter. This is uh, what the cross, the crucifixion, and the resurrection accomplish. This is Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Jesus rose again from the dead to deliver this news to us. That you can, in fact, be fully known. God knows you more than you even know yourself. He knows the junk in you. You haven't even discovered yet. And he loves you also more than you could even know. We will be we will be mining the depths of his love for all of eternity. That's essentially what Ephesians 2 says. If you read it, 1 through 10. It's amazing. So I imagine that in your minds right now, you think, oh, that was a great sermon. I guess we're done. <laughs> and you're also wondering, hold up, Nick. 
He just read John 21, 1 through 8. Where in the world are you getting all that you just said? Yeah, what you said sounds good, sounds true, maybe sounds biblical. But where in the world is that in our text? I'm glad you asked because that's what this whole sermon is going to be trying to show you. But before I get into it, let me at least clue you in here a bit right away at the beginning as to why I'm, 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 I'm coming uh, up with this and where. Of all that could be drawn out of this text, there's really just one little detail there at the end of verse 7 that has captivated me uh, for years. And I want it to captivate you. We read there that when Peter realized it was the Lord on the shore. Did you see it? When Peter realized, at first they didn't didn't know who this was. They couldn't see. And then when Peter realized it was the Lord on the shore, it says that he, he put his clothes back on. Thank goodness. And then he threw himself into the sea. That's the phrase. That's Jesus in the water. Now, still you say, why is this so moving? Why does this connect us to this idea of being fully known and deeply loved and the offering of Easter to us here this morning? Well, when you locate Peter's response here in context of the gospel narrative, I think you start to see it a little bit more clearly. Because some of us who have church background, maybe even some of us who don't, will recall that Peter, just days before, vehemently, passionately, embarrassingly, denies that he ever even knew Jesus. In fact, he even calls down a curse on himself. Like, let God kill me if I ever knew that man over there that you're finding guilty, because I don't want to be associated with him and share the same end. Denies him, right? To save his own skin. And then I'm thinking to myself. If that Jesus. Who I just days before. So passionately denied. Shows up. On the side of the shore. And I'm out in a boat. I'm not thinking. I can't wait to get to him. Right. I may still jump in the water, but if I do, it's to swim the other way. You're thinking, the one I denied, the one I betrayed, the curse is coming upon me. But that's why he's here. He knows. He don't love. He's come in wrath. But that's not. How Peter responds. He sees Jesus, the one who he passionately denied days earlier. And he throws himself into the sea to be the first one to get to him. Why? How? It's my argument here this morning that that's the kind of response a person has when you're known to the full. Deep down to the dark stuff you don't want anybody to see. And yet you also are convinced you're loved right there in your mess. I think that's where that response comes from. It's evidence, in other words, of a dream come True. Peter experienced this, and I want us to experience it here this morning as well. To get there, I'm just going to quickly look at three things, um, three different aspects, kind of of of, of, of Peter's relationship with Jesus. Uh, we kind of go back a little bit, backstory, and, and trace our way forward to this response, and I think you'll start to see more fully why this has captivated me, and I hope it captivates. You. Uh, we're going to look at first the denial in a little bit more detail, uh, then the pursuit of Christ, uh, that Christ pursues Peter in the midst of this, and then uh, finally we'll return to the response. <coughs> and uh, I'll just make some closing thoughts. So, first, 
the denial. If we are to be captivated by Peter's response here in John 21, I think we need to make sure we have first a sense of just the nature of his sin in particular. What exactly was it that he did and why then would it elicit such amazing joy in Peter when he's assured of his forgiveness? I think when you look at Peter's betrayal of Christ, it really is second in the Gospels only to Judas's, right? Um, At least it seems to me. When we consider what Peter does, it is grievous. Think with me for a moment about all that Peter knew. I mean, I can only briefly touch the surface, but walking with Christ for about three years or so during the time of his earthly ministry, alongside him the whole way. Think of the things that he saw, that he heard in Jesus. Just give you a few. When, when Peter's own mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, we're told that, that Peter pleads with Jesus and Jesus enters his uh, house speaks a word over his mother-in-law. She just rises up and starts to serve like nothing happened. Or you remember when Peter and the boys are on a boat at sea and Jesus is asleep, Mark tells us, on that cushion, just kind of lounging, and the waves get big and they're thinking the boat's going down. They wake up Christ in a panic. And same sort of thing as with the mother-in-law. Jesus just wakes up and with the word stills all that they were anxious and worried about. Peter's just watching this, seeing Or we just saw it, if you've been here with us on Sundays, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John with him up the Mount of Transfiguration and basically just drops the curtain and shows him his glory, radiant, the authority that he has, the beauty that he has. You just come to realize... All of this power, all of this authority, all of this is, in, is directed in love. It's harnessed by love for Peter and these guys and us. Jesus walked with him, talked with him, ate with him, ministered to him, entrusted himself to him, and would give his very life for him and was in the process of doing so. When Peter, to save his own life, when his own life was on the line, denies that he ever knew him at all. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he's dragged before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish court, and they're all falsely accusing him, mocking him, spitting him, slapping him, beating him. And meanwhile, outside, I mean, you might expect that from the Pharisees, you might expect that from the religious leaders, but outside, I, I suspect there's a slap that came in a way that hit deeper than any of those. Outside the Sanhedrin, there in the courtyard, Peter, his disciple, whom he entrusted himself to and loved. I never knew him. I never knew him. A little servant girl comes up to him first. You also were with Jesus, the Galilean. I do not know what you mean, Peter says. Another little servant girl sees him. This time he denies it with an oath. He kind of raises the stakes every denial. He denies it now with an oath. I do not know the man. It's Matthew 26, 72. Some other bystanders come up to him. This time he invokes a curse upon himself and swears, I do not know the man. And at that time, we're told the rooster crows. And Luke actually even tells us Jesus from inside seems heard, knew it was happening, whatever, turns and looks at Peter. I mean, what a moment that that would be. As he's dying for you, 
you're denying you ever knew him. Save your life. And we're told that Peter goes out quickly and weeps bitterly. So my question for you this morning is, have you been there? You know you're not supposed to do that. You know this isn't what would be appropriate or right. And yet, here you go again and again and again. Sin entangles. Darkness in the heart. Its roots go deep. There you are. And the question is, is there any hope for you? Is there any hope for me? Is there any hope for sinners like us? Who just so easily turn on God when it suits us and turn to Him when we need something from Him. Well, the answer is, yes, of course there's hope. That's what Easter's all about. That's what Easter's all about. So second, first the denial, now the pursuit. It's, <coughs> excuse me, it's important that we remember again, uh, Peter's denials here, while surely they broke the heart of our Lord, they did not come as a surprise to him. I mean, he called the way this would go down before it even happened, even when Peter was passionately denying that he would deny. Puffing up his chest. I will not. These guys, maybe. Me? No. Jesus knows it's coming. He knows it's going to happen. He calls it before it does. And the amazing thing is, is that he's actually committed to pursuing and loving Peter even through it. In spite of what he knows. Let me take you to that scene um, around the table of the Last Supper where Jesus is revealing these things to Peter. And he says this, Luke 22, verses 31 to 32. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. In case you're new to the Bible, Simon is another name for Peter. We're going to see later Cephas is as well. So forgive me. Peter, Simon, Cephas. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, Jesus says, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And he goes on to speak plainly to Peter. He says, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. So here's, here's the kind of outline, what we just heard. Peter, Satan's coming after you. You're going to deny me. Do you even know me? But I am praying for you, and I will get you through. Now, I am sorry, but if you're about to throw me under the bus... If you're about to betray our friendship, turn on me. Deny you knew me to get some gain out in the world. I'm struggling to pray for you in those moments, right? I'm sorry, you're not on my heart. Well, I just want good for this person. If I'm praying, I'm probably praying more like we saw, I think, last week with James and John. Remember what I said? God, you want me to call down fire on those brothers, on this person? Bring judgment and bring it fast, because they're about to hurt me. But that's not Christ's way. That's not what we see. Instead, we see this pursuit. Instead, we see, yeah, I know fully. I know more than you even know yourself about what's about to go down. And I love you. Praying for you, I'm pursuing you in it. 
But there's even more to this pursuit that I want to bring out at this point, because Jesus doesn't just pursue Peter in love before the denials. He actually continues that pursuit after the denials as well. And I wonder if you've noticed, you probably haven't, but I love to kind of slow us down in the scriptures and help us see what's there. I wonder if you've noticed how the scriptures highlight, go out of their way to emphasize Peter's appearing, I'm sorry, Jesus' appearing to Peter in particular after his resurrection, after Peter's denials. Let me show you just a few places where this shows up. Mark 16, 6 through 7. Um, two women have come to the tomb. They were going to dress Jesus' body for burial. They couldn't do it uh, the day he was killed because it, the Sabbath was starting. And so they roll back up uh, now the first day of the week and they find that Jesus is not there. And an angel gives this message to them. This is, again, Mark 16, 6-7. Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. And there you're going to see him just like he said. Now, you might miss that when you're reading it. But as I'm reading it, I'm just saying, why Peter? Why single out, go tell the disciples and Peter? I thought Peter was a disciple. Why not just go tell the disciples? Go tell the disciples and Peter. I imagine Peter himself and probably the other guys were wondering if he was even still considered a disciple at all. After what took place outside the Sanhedrin. Like, I don't even belong in the number anymore. The twelve. My place is out here somewhere with Judas. No, no, no. Go tell the disciples and Peter. I'm alive. And your hope is alive in me. So he singles Peter out, it seems to me, because Peter would be the one who most needs reassurance in those moments. Most needs to, he's the one who most needs to know, gosh, yes, Peter, I know all about it. I looked at you, I saw it, I heard it, I knew it before you even did it. But I'm not done with you. I love you. Take you to a few more places as well. Luke 24, 34. We learn from the two that Jesus shows up to on the road to Emmaus, those disciples. Jesus appears to them again now after his resurrection. And they come back delivering this message that <clears throat> that Jesus is risen from the dead. And uh, here's what they say. The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Well, he appeared to us too, but one of the things that Jesus also told us is that he already had showed up to, to Simon, to Peter. In other words, before Jesus was doing all this stuff, he's doing something with Peter in particular. And the scriptures bring it out so that we would see, oh, man, maybe there's hope for us. Maybe even though we deny him, even though we struggle, even though we go down to the depths and we sometimes nurse that junk in our heart. Maybe there's room for us still around the table. Or 1 Corinthians 15.5, Paul, when he's kind of recounting the gospel to the Corinthian church, and he's talking about what happened historically, he says this, he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, and then to the twelve. I thought Peter was one of the twelve. He is. Why highlight that he first appeared to Peter? Because Peter needed it, and we need it. We need to know. Isn't that amazing? Jesus isn't done with you. 
But Jesus pursues. He knows all about the junk and he pursues you in the midst of it. He comes with arms open. Now, to be clear, we don't know what Jesus said to Peter when he appeared to him here at first. But as we come now and start drawing things to a close, to consider his response uh, in John 21 when he sees Jesus again, I mean, all I'm left to uh, conclude is that whatever happened in this conversation between Jesus and Peter at first must have been some of the most beautiful, reassuring words of grace and love. Because when Peter sees him again, throws himself into the seat, get towards this one who knows and loves me like this and can help. That's the only sense I can make of it. Jesus must have preached to Peter the gospel. I think this is why, you know, later, it seems to me, at least as I'm imagining, these sorts of conversations are probably where Peter started getting the gospel for the very first time. Started getting personal. The cross started making sense. The resurrection was for him. Peter, a sinner, denier, betrayer. Started making sense. That's why later, First Peter 2.24 and other places, he would write about this to the churches. Trying to convince them of the same thing. He would say stuff like this. I've preached a sermon on this before. He himself, speaking of Jesus, Peter writes, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. By his wounds you have been healed. I get the cross, you guys, and I want you to get it too. You want to know why he died? Because I denied him for my denials. So that when he rose from the dead, he could come to a man like me and say, paid in full. I bore that and the wrath you're afraid I'm going to bring on you. The curse that you even invoked on yourself fell on me there at Calvary on the cross. That amazing. Peter starts to get it. And that's what elicits this response in John 21. He knows the kind of Savior he has in Jesus. He knows it's a dream come true. So I wonder. No doubt Jesus is pursuing some of us in this room. No doubt some of you up to this point have been uncertain whether there is hope for you And this text is saying unequivocally, there is. Jesus is pursuing. Now, there is something I wanted to bring out as we look at this uh, response um, a little bit more. As I read this account in John, I couldn't help but actually think of another account that happened way earlier. In fact, at the very beginning of Jesus' dealings with Peter. Where this same sort of scene, the same sort of uh, story is told. It's amazing. It's, it's, it's back in Luke 5 and there's these incredible parallels. And it's actually where the story differs that we start to get this striking insight and profound uh, revelation. I want to show you this. Um, back in Luke 5, Jesus is just beginning to reveal himself to Peter. And he is about to call Peter to be his disciple. Um, and what we see is basically the exact same thing as our text going down. Peter, James, and John, again, are out fishing. Some of the same dudes out fishing. Same activity. They're on the same sea, the Sea of Galilee. And they've been out all night and they've caught nothing. Again, just like our text uh, later in John 21. And again, Jesus shows up on the shore and he says, guys, did you catch anything? No. Why are you asking? Thanks for putting salt in our wounds. He said, well, why don't you go out there and put your nets down one more time? Same command. They do it. What happens? The nets fill with fish and they're about to break break the exact same scenario 
the same sort of miracle, command, see, activity, disciples even. But the key for me is the difference in Peter's response. Both stories highlight how Peter responds to this whole thing. When he gets who it is that he's talking to. In Luke 5, here's what we're told. Verse 8, when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying what? Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Did you hear that? Depart from me. No doubt you see me. And I, no doubt you'll reject me if you know me. Get away from me. I am a sinner. Before the death and resurrection of Jesus, before Peter understood the significance of Calvary and Easter, Get away from me. I am a sinner. Beyond your reach. After death and resurrection of Jesus, after Calvary and Easter, after Peter gets what it means for him, he threw himself into the sea. I can't get close to you fast enough. Hundred yards off, throws himself into the sea. Have you ever tried to swim that far? I would have drowned. I tried to swim Hume Lake thinking it looked fun. I didn't make it probably ten yards. It was pathetic. But Peter's propelled by this love One who could know him so fully and yet love him so deeply. I gotta get to him. You see, this is what Jesus, this is the kind of movement Jesus wants to take us on this morning. From get away from me, there's no way if you knew me that you would love me, to oh my goodness, it's true. He paid for it all. That's the point of the cross. What was he carrying there? Not your good stuff, your nasty stuff. All the stuff you don't want anybody to know. He knows and he paid for it. And he comes with an offer. It's amazing. I'm going to leave you with a final illustration. Um, Perhaps ill-advised because it comes from a TV show. I won't say the name of it. These are always risky maneuvers as a pastor. (laughs) But I'll leave you with one final illustration. There's a show that Megan and I just finished up. Um, And I thought, man, as gruesome as it was at times, it was this profound study, again, in what guilt when it's unaddressed, when it's hidden, when you try to cover it up. What guilt? Not being known. Being too scared to come out with it. What it does to a person. What it does to a person. So these cops had gone a bit crooked and they're trying to cover up their tracks and it led them to do some horrendous things. And there's this one profound scene um, it reminded me actually of a scene I brought up here before from Lady Macbeth which is asking who can clean my hands in the night just walking sleepwalking in her guilt but there's this guy who's walking in the night one of these cops just can't sleep and he says I just keep seeing her face. I can't, I can't close my eyes without seeing her face. But the show, I just want to tell somebody, I want this to come out, but if we come out with what we have done, it's over for us. It's over. We're locked up for good. 
Well, things escalate uh, a bit more and they're kind of brought to trial and they're thinking that uh, they're told that this one cop, one of their buddies is actually going to rat them out. He's going to come clean and he's going to tell them, uh, you know, tell everybody what they did as well. And so there's this tense moment in the courtroom and this guy takes the stand, except he doesn't rat them out. Instead, he takes the fall. They go free. No one even looks at them anymore. But here's the thing that was so profound for me. This is what I wanted to bring up. The camera kind of pans on these guys, these cops that are now off, I guess. And um, it pans on them. What you would expect to see is relief. What you would expect to see on their faces is, oh, it's over. We're free. We did it. But instead, instead, what I saw, what I think we were intended to see by the guy who directed this, was like a heavier burden. There wasn't joy. There was actually, I think, this sense of, wow, okay, if he tells the truth, finally it's out. We'll deal with it then. But at least it's out. I know we'll be rejected by our spouses, by our bosses, by our country. But at least it will be out. We won't be loved, but we will be known. Fine. But instead, doesn't come out. And what you see is, oh my gosh, the show has to go on. We have to keep up with the charade. We have to keep hiding. We're free, but we're not free. You see what I'm saying? There was this burden on these brothers because of their guilt. And here's what's so amazing about the gospel. Both things come together. It's not, well, if we're known, we're screwed. And so let's hide so that we can be accepted in love. No, it's both things come together. We can own our mess. We can own our sin, own the way that we talk to our spouse, own the way that we you know, went on the computer in the night, own the whatever it is. We can own it, walk into the light, and the light doesn't burn us or scald us, it heals us. Because it comes from the resurrected Lord, who still has wounds in his hands. Scars now, but they're there. Evidence that everything you could ever be ashamed of or worried about, he paid for it and he overcame it. You are known and you are loved. So the question then is, how are you going to respond? Do you know that love? You're going to throw yourself into the sea to get near the one who, who loves you like this. Are you going to still kind of sit reserved back on the bottom? I'm not sure. I don't really need that. Keep the show up. The show going on is going to kill you in the end. There is true freedom in walking out. Let's pray. God, thank you that you have overcome the grave. Thank you that everything we could be worried about, everything that we have done, everything that flitters in the back of our mind that we're ashamed of, that we try to edit out of our story but comes back to us in our nightmares, Lord, you have paid for it. And the Easter offer still stands. You would show up to people in this room here today and tell them, you... You're not against them. Stop running. You can be a disciple. There's room around the table. Lord, so I pray you would pursue my brothers and sisters in this place. I pray that there would be repentance. Not the kind that just brings you to the floor and leaves you there, but the kind that Peter actually would talk about, where when we humble ourselves, we're exalted by you and your grace. We're actually lifted up. And we lift your name up now. In thanksgiving. It's in your name we pray. Amen.